and welcome to Misinformation, a trivia podcast for ladies and gents who love cool trivia and sticking it to annoying teams up pub quiz. (laughs) We're your hosts. I'm Lauren. And I'm Julia. (laughs) Hey, Jewel. Hi, Lauren. I literally, I've been at your house right now for the past mm, half an hour. I just saw your uh, lit hedgehog, your outdoor hedgehog. hedgehog. It's tough to put him outside, but um, as soon as I saw this little guy at Target, I knew he was going to be mine. Oh, I love his little smile. He's very cute. <laughs> um, so, first of all, welcome back. Ah, uh, yes. Yes. Ca- what, back to uh, back to Canada's underpants. Mm-hmm. Mm, um, beautiful Canada's underpants. If uh, you saw on our on our social meds <laughs> a week or so ago, um, uh, engineer Josh and I were out in LA because Josh was taping for Jeopardy. Oh, so exciting! It was a lot of fun. Um, and his, you should check out Jeopardy on Wednesday, February 12th, 2020. Yes. And it, I'll send a reminder, obviously, like, yeah. before then, too. Yeah. But um, yeah, it's very, very exciting. And uh, while we were there, uh-huh. we went to the very infamous O'Brien's pub quiz yes. in Santa Monica. And oh boy, they are not joking around. <laughs> I, so I whenever imagine. you hear people talk about the O'Brien's pub quiz in LA, um, Apparently, uh, they their people that attend it take turns being the quiz master. Oh and when we God. were there, Lynn Yu was the quiz master. So oh. shout out to Lynn. Hello. Hi, Lynn. Um, and so it was really nice to get to chat with her for a little bit. But she wrote a hell of a quiz. Oh, it boy. Was, it, you know what? I learned a lot. Oh, good. That's important. <laughs> <laughs> we did not win. Oh. Um, because there are Jeopardy all-stars who are there, like yeah. Brad Rutter and Pam Mueller and like all kinds of all kinds of people that um, like are frequently on like yeah. the all-star list of Jeopardy contestants. So, um, but it was a lot of fun. It was a great experience. You definitely need like the full amount of people for your team to to fully play it because yeah. there are like handouts that you do like while you're waiting while you're doing the questions, mm-hmm. and like it's not like geeks who drink that it's just like yep here's jim carrey's face on mount rushmore it's like you need to solve this puzzle and put this puzzle together and then then maybe you'll find the answer to this question so yeah um yeah a lot of fun great job very hard uh kudos to anybody that that does that quiz yeah um but yeah that was that was a great a great time that's awesome i'm so glad you got to do that yeah yeah it uh certainly sounds like uh, it's nothing like Geeks Who Drink where, and don't get me wrong, we love Geeks Who Drink. Oh, absolutely. But it's not like they ask a question about like Jim Varney and then they spend five minutes playing the extended uh, version of the ska cover of True Colors while you just sit and wait for the next question. So um, yeah, that's great that you had such a refreshing yeah. and, and new and challenging yeah. oh, absolutely. experience. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of challenging, oh, uh, we're getting through this month of December, y'all, and uh, with our special themed month, Dictator December. I'll never get sick of that. It's so good. Mm. So, so far, so good. Yeah. I mean, oh, we haven't had any hate mail about it. So, <laughs> well, we're <laughs> we're not. This is not propaganda. No, absolutely not. We're not like, hey, yay, dictators. We should have more of those. That's certainly not uh, where we're coming from no. at all. No. So. So, yeah. So this week is uh, week three. And uh, today we're talking about El Comandante Fidel Castro. I'm the bad guy. Duh. Um, and much like Lauren asked for forgiveness um, for her Spanish pronunciations with her Italian accent, I will be asking for forgiveness <laughs> for my Spanish pronunciations with my French accent. I can't wait to hear it, actually. Uh, I don't think I've ever heard any French words with a Spanish accent. Well, here, well, here we go. Great. Excited. Fidel Alejandro Castro Ruz was born on August 13, 1926, near Biran in Cuba's Eastern Orient province. So he was the third of six children. Um, he had two brothers, Rahul and Ramon, Ramon. of whom you may have heard, yes. and three sisters, um, Angela, Emma, <laughs> and Augustina. I don't know. <laughs> It's no. they're spelled like that. No, I love it. You're like Angela, <laughs> Emma. <laughs> they're from the Chicago area. <laughs> um, so his father's name was Angel. He was a wealthy sugar plantation owner who did most of his business with the American-owned United Fruit Company. Oh yeah. Um, his mother, 
had been a maid to Angela's first wife <gasps> at the time of Fidel's birth. Uh-oh. El scandal. Um, and by the time Fidel was 15, his father dissolved his first marriage with his first wife and was and married his mother. Oh, wow. Um, at age 17, Fidel was formally recognized by his father. It took that long for his father to be like, <laughs> yes, this is my son. Um, <laughs> and his name was then, his last name was changed from Ruz to Castro. Okay. So um, Fidel grew up in wealthy circumstances, actually, among, amid the poverty of Cuba, and he was educated in private Jesuit boarding schools. Um, from an early age, Castro showed he was intellectually gifted, but was also little bit of a troublemaker mm. um, he was often more interested in sports than studies um, he attended Colegio Dolores in Santiago de Cuba and then El Colegio de Belén in Havana where he was a pitcher for the school's baseball team and oh, wow. he also played basketball and ran track um, so how we've talked about like what if Stalin had stayed on at Weatherman Academy mm -hmm. and like what if Hitler had been accepted to art school um, there's a similar legend that Castro was scouted by or tried out as a pitcher for the Washington Senators in the 1940s oh my God. but was rejected However, there is no actual evidence that he ever had a tryout with any American baseball okay. team. Um, so later on, people tried to use this rumor to attribute Castro's anti-Americanism to his bitter disappointment over okay. failing at a baseball tryout. I see. But I see. that seems to be an urban legend. But think about the alternate universe... <laughs> Where Hitler was an incredible, famous artist. We're like, ooh, I have an Adolf Hitler in my house. I wonder how much it's worth. Or like the most famous weatherman in Russia, <laughs> Joe, <laughs> Uncle Joe Stalin. Joe Stalin. And Fidel Castro, the, the starting pitcher for the Senators. <laughs> he was so good. Won three yeah. World Series. <laughs> yep. Just turned everything around for the... Yeah. A, for real, the a real alternate timeline. Yeah. For sure. Crazy alternate timeline. <laughs> Just a thought experiment. So after Castro graduated from college or colegio, as they say, colegio. in late 1945, um, he entered law school at the University of Havana and he became immersed in the climate of Cuban nationalism, anti-imperialism and socialism. Mm. By 1947, Castro had become increasingly passionate about social justice and he traveled to the Dominican Republic to join an expedition attempting the overthrow of the country's dictator, Rafael Trujillo. Although the coup failed before it got started, the incident still kept Castro's passion for reform alive, um, and he traveled to Bogota, Colombia the following year to participate in the anti-government rioting that was there. Um, Castro also joined the Partido Ortodoxo, an anti-communist political party founded to reform government in Cuba. Its founder, Cuban presidential candidate Eduardo Chibas, lost the 1948 election, but inspired Castro to become like a big disciple of his. Um, he pledged to expose the government's corruption and warn the people about General Fulgencio Batista, who was plotting a return to power. Um, he was the president from 1940 to 1944 in Cuba. Okay. However, Chivas's efforts were cut short after his supposed allies refused to provide evidence of government wrongdoing. And in August 1951, Chivas, who did a weekly radio broadcast, he shot himself on air. What? Much oh. drama. Oh my God. Uh, yeah. Thank God it was radio and not TV. Yeah. Oof. So this was like Castro's like friend and his mentor. Yeah. 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 So um, in 1948, which was a few years prior to, to Shibas's demise, um, Castro married Mirta Diaz-Balart, who was from a wealthy political family in Cuba. They had one child, also named Fidel. Um, they nicknamed him Fidelito, meaning Aww, little, little Fidel, Fidel. Um, in 1949. So the marriage showed Castro a wealthier lifestyle and gave him improved political connections. Around the same time, he developed an interest in the work of Karl Marx hey. and became intent on running for a seat in the Cuban Congress. <laughs> Um, in March 1952, a coup led by General Fulgencio Batista um, successfully overthrew the government and the upcoming election was canceled, leaving wow. Castro without a legitimate political platform and little income with which to support his family. So Batista's back in office. He set himself up as a dictator and solidified his power with the military and Cuba's economic elite. And he had his government recognized by the United States. Mm. So Castro and fellow members of the Pardito Ortodoxo organized a group that they called the Move. And they planned an insurrection. Oh, my goodness. On July 26, 1953, Castro and about 150 supporters attacked the Moncada military barracks outside of Santiago de Cuba in an attempt to overthrow Batista. The attack failed and Castro was captured and tried and convicted and oh, sentenced no. to 15 years in prison. And his brother Rahul was also among those in prison. 
But while incarcerated, Castro got his group together. He renamed his group the 26th of July Movement, and they continued to coordinate their activities through correspondence while in prison. He and his fellow prisoners were ultimately released in 1955 under an amnesty deal with the Batista government, and he traveled with Raul to Mexico, where they continued to plan their revolution. Um, around that time, his wife Myrtle left him and like jetted the hell out of there and went went to Spain. What about Fidelito? I think they left him there. Oh, <laughs> I think no. he's still in. I think he was still in Cuba at this point. <laughs> like he, you know, Fidel had some family members. They probably oh, okay. left him there, but his wife. She am she ran off. Um, so Castro's in Mexico. He met with other Cuban exiles as well as the Argentinian rebel Ernesto Che Guevara. <gasps> hey, who believed that the plight of Latin America's poor could be fixed only through violent revolution? Mm, Naturally, yeah. um, so Guevara joined Castro's group and became an important confidant and helped to shape Castro's political beliefs. On December second, nineteen fifty-six, Castro returned to Cuba aboard the boat Grandma. I'm sorry. Yeah. Like this, abuela? Like grandma? Yeah, grandma. G R A N M A is the name of the, the boat they run. Okay. Um, he had about 80 insurgents with them and they had a bunch of weapons and they were near the eastern city of Manzanillo. Uh, Batista's forces, this is who they were attacking, Batista's forces killed or captured most of their attackers. But um, Castro, as well as his brother Rahul, um, Che Guevara, and a handful of others were able to escape into the Sierra Maestra mountain range along the island's southern coast. So over the next two years, Castro's steadily growing forces waged a guerrilla war against the Batista government. Oh my God. So they were just like pouring out of the the mountainous jungle yes. and like yeah attacking yeah the government so they had forces. their 80 guys they were on the grandma they attacked <laughs> they <Yeah>. attacked <laughs> batista's group batista's group like killed most of them and then the guys that live like went and hid in the woods oh my and god managed to like gather support because they were like this was bad right yeah um so they so they basically spent the next two years like growing forces and they organized resistance groups in cities and small towns across Cuba. Castro was also able to organize a parallel government. He was able to carry out agrarian reform and control provinces with agricultural and manufacturing production while hiding out. So it's kind of like the Cosa Nostra. Like he was kind of running like a parallel like system, like a protectorate system. In a way. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. So enough people didn't like Batista mm-hmm. that they were like, well, that guy in the woods is. <laughs> <laughs> wow. He's got some good ideas. <laughs> the guy in the woods has some great ideas. <laughs> so beginning in 1958, Castro and his forces mounted a series of successful military campaigns to capture and hold key areas throughout Cuba. Mm-hmm. Um, so combined with a loss of popular support and massive desertions in his military, Batista's government finally collapsed under Castro's efforts. And in January 1959, Batista himself fled to the Dominican Republic. So at the age of 32, what? Castro had successfully concluded his guerrilla campaign to take control of Cuba. Man, what have I been doing? You know? <laughs> It really makes you think. (laughs) So, according to Encyclopedia Britannica, Castro was celebrated as a hero for toppling Batista's authoritarian regime. Okay, yeah. Ed Sullivan, the host of America's TV's most popular, really big variety show, flew to Cuba to tape an interview with Castro on January 11th, 1959, where, surrounded by about 100 armed men, um, Ed Sullivan talked with Castro, whom he likened to George Washington. He called Castro a fine young man, which were the same adjectives he also had used to describe Elvis Presley. Um, And later that day in Havana, Castro taped an appearance for the TV news program Face the Nation. And he also talked with a few other famous talk show hosts and newscasters. So Castro, who had yet to declare himself a Marxist, said that he thought the American people were, quote, nice. Oh, thanks. (laughs) So he he did all this stuff and he kind of overthrew the authoritarian regime. And everyone was like... Great job, Good man. Good job, young guy. Great job. Oh, boy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. So, <laughs> here we go. Um, a provisional government was quickly created then with Manuel Urrutia installed as president and Jose Miro Cardona as prime minister. And that quickly gained the recognition of the United States. And Castro himself arrived in Havana to cheering crowds and assume the post of commander in chief of the military. Um, In February, 1959, Miro suddenly resigned and Castro was then sworn in as Cuba's prime minister. And meanwhile, hundreds of members of Batista's government were tried and executed. Oh, jeez. 
So Castro implemented far-reaching reforms by nationalizing factories and plantations in an attempt to end U.S. economic dominance on the island. Mm -hmm. Among these reforms, it was announced that the new government would base compensation to foreign companies on low property values that the companies had negotiated with the previous Cuban governments in order to keep their taxes low. So basically... Like the American factories came in, they're like, well, it's super cheap to build here. Yeah. Um, so they said, well, you're not going to actually make a lot of money off of that because mm-hmm. you bought that property for super cheap. Yeah. Like trying to trick us. Um, so American companies ended up feeling the negative effects of these measures. Oh, sure. And that led to a significant strain in relations between Cuba and the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, during this time, Castro repeatedly denied being a communist, but to many Americans, his policies closely resembled the Soviet-style control of both the economy and government. In April 1959, Castro and a delegation visited the U.S. as guests of the National Press Club. Um, Castro hired a public relations firm to help promote his tour, but at the time, President Dwight Eisenhower refused a meeting with him. Mm. In May that year, Castro signed the first Agrarian Reform Act, which limited the size of land holdings and forbade foreign property ownership. Oh, okay. So even if you ha- if you were a foreign um, uh, foreign country that owned property on Cuba, mm-hmm. like, nope, not anymore. Wow. Yeah. So you're just booted yeah. out. Yeah. Um, so on that surface, the intent was to develop a class of independent farmers. But in reality, that program led to state land control mm. with farmers becoming government employees. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. And by the end of 1959, Castro's revolution had become radicalized with purges of military and government leaders, including the president, Urrutia, and the suppression of any medical of any media critical of Castro's policies. His government also began establishing relations with the Soviet Union. Of course. The USSR sent more than 100 Spanish-speaking advisors to help organize Cuba's defense committee. And in February 1960, Cuba signed a trade agreement to buy oil from the Soviet Union and establish diplomatic relations. When the U.S.-owned refineries in Cuba refused to process the oil, Castro expropriated them, and the U.S. retaliated by cutting Cuba's important quota on sugar, beginning on what would become a decades-long contentious relationship between the two countries. Yeah, I think I remember hearing about that. Yeah, right? (laughs) So it's a big year for Castro in 1961, especially for his relationship with the U.S. Mm -hmm. On January 3rd, 1961, outgoing President Eisenhower broke off diplomatic relations with the Cuban government. On April 14th that year, Castro formally declared Cuba a socialist state. Oh, boy. Three days later, about 1,400 Cuban exiles invaded Cuba at the remote Bay of Pigs in an attempt to overthrow the Castro regime. So, oh, wow. like just two years after Castro had overthrown Batista, there are a bunch of Cuban exiles that were like, no, we're going to get him. So that incursion ended in disaster. There were hundreds of insurgents killed and more than a thousand were captured. So though the U.S. denied any involvement, it was revealed that Cuban exiles had been trained by the CIA and armed with American weapons. Mm-hmm. Decades later, the National Security Archive revealed that the United States had begun planning an overthrow of the Castro government as early as March 1959. Oh, my Um, gosh. So a couple months after Ed Sullivan had called him a very very fine young young man. man. (laughs) Um, So the invasion was conceived during the Eisenhower administration and then inherited by President John F. Kennedy, who reluctantly approved its action but denied the invaders any air support in hopes of concealing the U.S.'s role in the effort. Castro was able to capitalize on the incident to consolidate his power and further promote his agenda. On May 1st, 1961, he announced an end to democratic elections in Cuba, and he denounced American imperialism. Uh, Then, at the year's end, uh, Castro declared himself a Marxist-Leninist and announced that the Cuban government was adopting communist economic and political policies. On February 7th, 1962, the United States imposed a full economic embargo on Cuba. So in the wake of the Bay of Pigs incident, Castro intensified his relations with the Soviet Union by accepting further economic and military aid from them. In October 1962, his increasing reliance on Soviet support brought the world to the brink of nuclear war. Yay! Yeah. Hoping to deter another U.S. invasion of Cuba, Castro and Soviet Premier Nikita Khrushchev came up with the idea of placing nuclear missiles in Cuba, just about 90 miles off the coast of Florida. Khrushchev justified the move as a response to the U.S. Jupiter missiles that had been deployed in Turkey. However, an American American U-2 reconnaissance plane discovered the base construction before the missiles were installed, and President Kennedy responded by demanding the removal of the missiles with orders for the U.S. Navy to search any vessels heading for the island. Over 13 anxious days of secret communications between Khrushchev, Kennedy, and their agents, the Soviets finally agreed to remove the missiles in exchange for the U.S.'s public agreement not to invade Cuba. 
The Kennedy administration also agreed to secretly remove the Jupiter missiles from Turkey. And both leaders ultimately saved face and gained some admiration for their restraint. But Castro, on the other hand, was humiliated because Mm -hmm. both superpowers had completely left him out of the negotiations. Uh, Isn't this... Um, there's a movie based on this called like 13 days or something like that, that I, uh, didn't see. No, I did see it. (laughs) I saw it. I saw it in a, like a civics class in high school. It was good. It was interesting. Um, the guy who played JFK looked a lot like JFK. It was amazing. I don't remember who was in it. Anyway, (laughs) if you're interested in hearing about that, go see that movie, I guess. Definitely. So, Castro's upset, but he didn't take this lying down. Of course In 1965, not. he merged Cuba's Communist Party with his revolutionary organizations and installed himself as the head of the party. Within a few years, he began a campaign of supporting armed struggle against imperialism in Latin America and African countries. Uh, in January 1966, he founded the Organization for Solidarity with the Peoples of Asia, Africa, and Latin America to promote revolution and communism on three continents. Wow. And in 1967, he also formed the Latin American Solidarity organization to foster revolution in select Latin American countries. In the 70s, Castro continued to promote himself as the leading spokesperson for third world countries by providing military support to pro-Soviet forces throughout Africa. So though Cuba was still heavily subsidized by the Soviet government during this period, those expeditions ultimately proved unsuccessful and put a strain on the Cuban economy. So they're just they're an island in the they're middle an, of the caribbean they're so small yeah what made them like they that? like they're taking money from the soviet union for things yeah and like in return they're going out to like basically like proselytize like communism and um the ussr yeah and not really getting anywhere because they're they're like the size of a finger <laughs> on the map like an index finger Crazy. it is it is a big island Oh, sure. Yeah. I Give mean, them that. I mean, but then you think about like all the continent yeah. of Africa, yeah. all the countries in there. Like, yeah. what are they going to do? Gonna you know, not going to help them. So meanwhile, the U.S. agreement not to invade Cuba had not precluded attempting to topple the Castro regime in other ways. Mm. Over the years, Castro was the target of numerous creative CIA assassination attempts. Among my favorites, cigars poisoned with botulinum toxin, a tuberculosis-infected scuba diving suit with a booby-trapped conch placed on the sea bottom. Oh, my God. An exploding cigar. Because sure. Castro loves cigars. He also loves scuba diving, by the way. Um, <laughs> but he quit smoking in 1985. Um, also, a ballpoint pen containing a hypodermic syringe preloaded with the lethal concoction Blackleaf 40. This is like Boris uh-huh. and Natasha-level shit. There were also plans to blow up Castro during his visit to Ernest Hemingway's museum in Cuba. Hey, I've been there. In Cuba? Oh, uh, no, I went to the one in um, in Key West. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so Fabian Escalante, the former head of the intelligence directorate and the man who had the job of protecting Castro for about 49 years, mm. alleges that there were over 600 plots and conspiracies known to Cuban agents all dreamt up to kill Castro. Oh, my gosh. Some were perpetrated by the CIA, especially during the first half of the 1960s. Mm-hmm. But from the 70s onward, it seems that the attempts were most often made by Cuban exiles who had been trained by the CIA <laughs> Shortly after Castro took power in 1959. Uh, Some of the plots were depicted in a 2006 documentary film called 638 Ways to Kill Castro, which aired on Channel 4 in the UK. Um, One of these attempts was by an ex-lover who agreed to aid the CIA by attempting to smuggle a jar of cold cream containing poison pills into his room. Some plots aimed not at murder, but at character assassination. So, for example, using thallium salts to destroy Castro's famous beard or (laughs) lacing his radio studio with LSD to cause him disorientation (laughs) during the broadcast and damage his public image. (laughs) Um, By the way, Castro kept his signature beard as a symbol and triumph of the revolution, and it also saved him a lot of time. Mm. Uh, By his calculation, Castro said, quote, if you multiply the 15 minutes you spend shaving every day by the number of days in a year, you'll see that you devote almost 5,500 minutes to shaving. An eight-hour day of work consists of 480 minutes. So if you don't shave, you gain about 10 days that you can devote to work or reading or sport, but probably 
work. Yeah. He, he sounds like a really fun guy to talk to. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Um, so the last documented attempt on Castro's life was in 2000 and involved placing about 200 pounds of explosives under a podium in Panama where he was going to be giving a talk. Uh, but Castro's personal security team discovered the explosives before he arrived. Castro took great delight in the fact that none of the attempts ever succeeded and was also quoted as saying that if avoiding assassination attempts was an Olympic sport, he would have won gold medals. That's pretty good. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I love this this run of a gamut of like from subtle to like, let's just put a bunch of explosives under the podium. I got nothing. Yeah. I, got, I don't have anything else. He didn't pick up the poison conch shell <laughs> on the bottom of the ocean while he was scuba diving. Do you know how much money we spent on that stupid conch shell? We had the prop guys working for months. <laughs> so we have a little bit of good news here, like okay. in all this. So Castro's regime was credited with opening 10,000 new schools and increasing literacy on Cuba to 98%. Wow, that's pretty good. Um, Cubans also enjoyed a universal healthcare system, which decreased infant mortality to only about um, 11 deaths in 1,000, which is 1.1%, which is like... That's pretty good. That's great. Yeah. Um, Also, a sidebar here, which is still part of under good news, I guess. Um, Castro loved ice cream so much (laughs) that during the 1960s, he ordered the construction of the greatest ice cream parlor in the world in Havana. Um, So he had his secretary, Celia Sanchez, um, help design the plans for this. They named it Coppelia after that ballet about a life-size doll. Mm. Um, We covered that in episode 105, Hold Me Closer, Tiny Dancer. Um, so Castro had a special breed of cow developed um, that could withstand the Cuban weather. And he had a favorite cow named Ubra Blanca, white udder. <laughs> white um, udder? Ubra Blanca, his favorite <laughs> cow. Um, so Copelia, this domed two-story ice cream palace, was a dazzling sponge sugar white with stained glass windows and seating for a thousand. What? Um, so before the revolution, the Cuban people loved, quote, Howard Johnson's ice cream. Castro told a visiting journalist shortly after Coppelia opened, referring to the then iconic American brand, quote, this is our way of showing we can do everything better than the Americans. Wow. Coppelia still exists as a state-run ice cream parlor, which to this day employs more than 400 workers and serves 4,250 U.S. gallons of ice cream a day to about 35,000 customers a day. So at the time, they were like... We are going to have the best ice cream in the world. They had like 25 flavors. It was super cheap. Oh, sure. Um, you would order like five scoops of ice cream at a time. They would call it like basically a salad, like an <laughs> ensalada, like a, oh, okay. like you would get yourself like five different scoops, you know, and it yeah, would be super flavors. cheap. So nowadays they don't have nearly as many flavors and apparently the quality is not as good as it was when Castro was in office, but, um, but like it's still there and it's a, it's a tourist spot too that's 35,000 people at one ice cream parlor in a day people like stand in line for hours to get to, to that's go crazy. to this place Coppelia all right so that was the good news okay but as always there's the bad there's news. always bad news um, when we're so talking at the same about time civil liberties were being whittled away oh. as labor unions lost the right to strike independent newspapers were shut down and religious institutions were harassed Castro removed opposition to his rule through executions and imprisonments as well as through forced emigration though there are no exact numbers the Cuba archive estimates that tens of thousands were murdered with the documented 5600 killed by firing squads alone even more Cubans were killed by state forces when they tried to flee the country, which occurred during the 1980 Canamar River Massacre, where 56 were assassinated by the Cuban government on July 6, 1980, for attempting to flee Cuba. That's my birthday. Oh, that's your birthday. <laughs> The Canamar River Massacre. Oh, no. Also, the Tugboat Massacre of 1994. So the 1994 incident happened during the early morning of July 13th, 1994, when a stolen tugboat full of civilians attempted to escape the Bay of Havana. The tugboat was a state-owned boat called the, um, what's 13 in Spanish? Uh, uh, D.A.C. Trace? Okay, I think. De Marzo, or the March 13th, that was the name of the boat. Oh. <laughs> it was like the 13th de, of March was the name of the boat. So just a few miles off the coast, the March 13th was rammed by four other boats that had pursued it out of the harbor. Both civilians and crew were swept off the decks by jets of water that were fired from the other boats. And once the March 13th had sank, the survivors weren't offered any immediate aid. So only when like a Greek boat accidentally stumbled upon the scene did um, did anybody attempt to rescue those who were still afloat in the water. Oh so out of a total of the 72 people on board who were just trying to escape in this like old rickety 
tugboat, at least 37 died, including a dozen children and babies. Oh, no. Very sad. That's awful. Like, let them leave. Yeah. Let them leave. I don't know. They're not doing you any harm. Jeez. During Castro's rule, hundreds of thousands of Cubans fled the country, mentally settling just across the Florida Straits in Miami. The largest exodus happened in 1980 when Castro opened up the port of Meriel to allow exiled Cubans living in Miami to come claim their relatives. Mm. Upon their arrival, Castro also loaded the ships with Cuban prison inmates and mentally ill people and sent them back too. So he was like, oh, you left your grandma, your abuela here? (laughs) Um, you can come and get her. And then you were like, okay, I love my abuela. I'm going to go pick her back up at Havana. But Mm -hmm. then by the way, you have to take all of these um, murderers. Yeah. Here you go. Take these murderers with you. Oh my God. In all, nearly 120,000 Cubans left their homeland in 1980 alone to find sanctuary in the U.S. Holy cow. Oh, Although there's no official count, Castro is believed to have fathered at least nine children. So again, with his first wife, he had a son, uh, Fidelito, Mm -hmm. um, who actually committed suicide in in February 2018 after a battle with depression. Um, But Castro and his second wife, Dalia Sota de Valle, had five more sons. And he also had three other children from three separate women. Um, A 2008 documentary claimed that the Cuban leader slept with at least two women a day for 40 years. No. And sometimes a third one came in after dinner so two to three women every day for 40 years that doesn't seem possible he could have used that time to work you know (laughs) all the time he saved shaving he was actually saving that yeah he was banking that time (laughs) as as you would for banging during that time (laughs) exactly um and a former castro official said quote i don't think he would have stayed on for as long as he did if not for all the incredible women he had access to as president barf yeah (laughs) yeah yeah ew So after the 1991 collapse of the Soviet Union sent Cuba's economy into a tailspin, Mm. Castro's revolution began to lose momentum. Uh, Without cheap oil imports and an eager Soviet market for Cuban sugar and other goods, Cuban unemployment and inflation grew. Mm. The contraction of the Cuban economy resulted in 85% of its markets disappearing. Oh, my God. They were relying that heavily on the USSR. Oh, my gosh. So Castro remained adept at keeping control of the government during dire economic times. Um, He pressed the U.S. to lift their economic embargo, but it refused. Like... Mm -hmm. You've been a jerk to us for 30 years. Yeah. Like, I don't know. Castro then adopted a quasi-free market economy and encouraged international investment. Mm. He also legalized the U.S. dollar and encouraged limited tourism. And in 1996, he visited the United States to invite Cuban exiles living there to return to Cuba to start businesses. Okay. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Like, if people are going to be like, oh, okay, oh, thanks. Right. Hi. Hi. Yeah, I'm coming. I'm coming back. Let me I'm going to open on my a, raft. Open a restaurant. Jeez. In 2001, after massive damage was caused um, to Cuba by Hurricane Michelle, Castro declined U.S. humanitarian aid, but proposed a one-time cash purchase of food from the United States. Uh, President George W. Bush's administration agreed and authorized the shipment. With the fuel supply running dangerously low, Castro ordered 118 factories to be closed and sent thousands of Cuban doctors to Venezuela in exchange for oil imports. So now he's like trading people People. for, for goods and services. In the late 1990s, speculation began to arise over Castro's age and well-being. Mm. Numerous health problems had been reported over the years, the most significant occurring in 2006 when Castro underwent surgery for gastrointestinal bleeding. In a dramatic announcement, on July 31st, 2006, Castro designated his brother Raul as the country's temporary leader. It was the first time since the 1959 revolution that he had ceded any control. Oh my gosh. So Raul had served as Castro's second-in-command for decades and had been officially selected as his successor in 1997 following Castro's surgery his only appearances were in photographs and video recordings or meetings on February 19th 2008 81 year old Castro permanently gave up the Cuban presidency due to his deteriorating physical Mm -hmm. condition he handed his power over to Raul who was 76 at the time oh like a tick in 76 The Cuban National Assembly officially selected Raul as president of Cuba that same month, although Castro reportedly remained the first secretary of the Communist Party. Like, wasn't going to give that up. But in April 2011, news broke that Castro officially stepped down from his role within the Communist Party. Raul easily won election as the party's new first secretary, taking over his brother and choosing famed revolutionary Jose Ramon Machado Ventura to serve as the president's second in command. 
In his retirement, Castro began writing a column about his experiences and opinions called Reflections of Fidel. No, no, (laughs) stop it. (laughs) Musings of Fidel. (laughs) And in 2007, his autobiography was published. It was called My Life. He was running out of steam. At least it wasn't my struggle. (laughs) (laughs) Um, for a couple months, though, he failed to to publish any columns. So people were like, uh-oh, uh-oh, did he take a turn for the worst? But then he put out like a bunch of articles like a couple months later, like, don't worry, I'm still here. So not, though not involved in the day-to-day affairs of running Cuba, Castro still maintained a certain degree of political influence, both at home and abroad. Sure, um, yeah. He continued to meet with foreign leaders, such as Iran's Mahmoud Ahmadinejad in 2012 during their visits to Cuba. Um, Pope Benedict arranged a special audience with Castro at the end of his trip there in March 2012, seeking to obtain greater religious freedom for Catholics living in the communist nation. And in September 2015, Pope Francis met privately with Castro too. In 2016, when Barack Obama became the first sitting president to visit Cuba in almost 90 years, oh, yeah. he did not meet with Castro, who later denounced the Goodwill mission in his column, citing mistrust of U.S. motivations and writing, quote, we don't need their empire to gift us anything. Oh, wow. Like, some, maybe you do. Yeah. Maybe you do, Fidel. I don't Those know. Those are some big words from an old man writing a, a crank <laughs> column, you know? Like, he's like the Andy Rooney of Cuba at this point. Don't you hate it when the U.S. president comes to your country? <laughs> That's great. That's great. Uh, may you rest, Andy Rooney. So, speaking of death. Um, so, Castro finally died. <laughs> On November 25th, 2016, at the age of 90. Oh, my God. His cause of death wasn't announced, but he was 90. Yeah, he was 90. I can't believe that. Um, So his brother and successor, Raul, made the announcement of his death on Cuban state television. And Cuba declared nine days of mourning. Mm. Thousands of Cubans lined up to pay tribute to their leader at a memorial at the Plaza de la Revolución in Havana, where he had delivered many speeches throughout his rule. On November 29th, Rahul led a massive rally, which was attended by leaders of ally nations, including Nicolas Maduro of Venezuela, Evo Morales of Bolivia, Jacob Zuma of South Africa, and Robert Mugabe of Zimbabwe. Tens of thousands of Cubans attended the rally chanting, Yo soy Fidel, and Viva Fidel. Yo soy. Um... (laughs) While there was mourning in Havana, Cuban exiles around the world celebrated the death of the man they believed yeah. was a tyrant responsible for killing and imprisoning thousands of Cubans uh, yeah. and separating generations of families. A motorcade carrying Castro's ashes in a Cuban flag draped casket was driven across the country to Santiago de Cuba. On December 4th, 2016, his remains were buried at the Santa Ifigenia Cemetery in Santiago near the burial site of Cuban poet and independence leader Jose Marti. Following Castro's death, Cuba's government announced that it would be passing a law prohibiting the naming of institutions, streets, parks, or other public sites, or erecting bust statues or other forms of tribute in honor of the late Cuban leader in keeping with his wishes to prevent a cult of personality from developing oh, around what him. A, what a nice guy. So this guy's legacy. He was the longest serving non-royal head of state in the 20th and 21st centuries. He was in charge for 47 years from 1959 to 2006. For comparison, during that same period, 10 different men served as the president of the United States. Oh, my God. From Eisenhower to George W. Bush. So it was probably like every time like a president came in, like there's just like filing cabinets full of stuff that was just like. There's just our stuff on Castro. Take your time. Just <laughs> but make sure you read it all. <laughs> Maybe you can come up with something better. Uh, I don't we know. did the we cigar tried the thing. cigars. <laughs> we tried to poison work. his beard. I don't know. Maybe just explosives. I I don't know. Whatever. <laughs> You'll figure it out. So under Castro's leadership, Cuba actually became one of the best educated and healthiest societies in the third world, Okay, as well as one of the most militarized states in Latin America. Jeez. A little um, bit of column A, a little bit of column B. Yeah. Um, Castro publicly rejected the dictator label. He wouldn't approve of this episode being involved, being okay. included in this theme month. Um, he stated that he constitutionally held less power than most heads of state and insisted that his regime allowed for greater democratic involvement in policy making okay. than any Western liberal democracies. Mm-hmm. The Cuba Archive Project, it has documented almost 10,000 victims of Castro between 
1952 and today, including 5,600 men, women, and children who died in front of firing squads and another 1,200 in extrajudicial assassinations. Thousands more Cubans also died trying to flee his repressive regime. So Cuba Archives Truth and Memory Project documents deaths and disappearances resulting from the Cuban Revolution and studies transitional issues of truth, memory, and justice. Uh, They seek to help Cubans attain their rightful freedoms, foster a culture of respect for life and the rule of the law, and honor the memory of those who've paid the highest price. And you can learn more about them at cubaarchive.org. Cool. (sighs) Time for a quiz. Oh, I'm sorry. I thought let's, that, let's be done. That was great. That was excellent. Cubaarchive.org, everybody. Make sure that you support your local archive and your non-local archive. I'm ready for this quiz. Okay. Pumped. This quiz is called Havana Unana. Hey, hey, kiss him goodbye. <laughs> this is a quiz on Cuba's capital and songs played at sporting events. Oh, my gosh. Question one. El Floridita is a historic fish restaurant and cocktail bar in the older part of Havana. Known for its daiquiris, Floridita also boasts a life-size bronze statue of which American writer positioned in his favorite spot at the end of the bar as a perpetual old man by the sea. Question two. Boom, boom, clap. Boom, boom, clap. Which 1977 song royally set in acapella form using only stomping and clapping as percussion, besides a 30-second guitar solo at the end, ranked as Billboard's number one greatest jock jam of all time? Question three. Havana's Plaza de la Revolution, or Revolution Square, is one of the greatest city squares in the world, and on the eastern facade of the Ministerio del Interior is a giant sculpture modeled in the likeness of an iconic 1960 photograph captured by Alberto Coda. Below the portrait is the phrase, hasta la victoria siempre, the famous quotation by which revolutionary hero and former friend of Fidel Castro? Question four. If you go to a wedding in Buffalo, you know you're going to hear what quintessential song by the Isley Brothers, which has been appropriated as the Bill's fight song. Question five. Try to remember. A massive explosion causing the destruction of the USS Maine in Havana Harbor triggered the outbreak of what 1898 international conflict? Question six. The opening verse, which you may never have heard, of this famous 1908 sports anthem, which you definitely have, starts with the lyrics, Ahem, Katie Casey was baseball mad, had the fever and had it bad. Just to root for the hometown crew, every Sue Katie Blue. On a Saturday, her young beau called her to see if she'd like to go to see a show, but Miss Kate said no. I'll tell you what you can do. What sports song is this? Question seven. This reimagining of a 1987 blockbuster film transplanted the original movie story from upstate New York to Cuba on the cusp of the Cuban Revolution. Actors Diego Luna and Romola Garay may not have quite had the time of their lives in what 2004 film? Question eight. I mean, I guess it makes sense if you're running around a baseball diamond, but several other professional and college sports teams, including the Boston Red Sox, Carolina Panthers, UNC Chapel Hill Tar Heels, and University of Pittsburgh Panthers, use what 1969 song as unofficial celebration music? Question nine. Inside the Morrow Castle Historic Park in Havana is the world's longest what? Measuring a whopping 295 feet, created by a master torcedor. That would equal a whole mess of crepes at the magic pan, as long as they're not rolled too tightly. And finally, question 10. Oh, mama, I'm in fear for my life from the long arm of the law. Starts what 1979 rock song that has become an anthem to the Pittsburgh Steelers? There are three rivers by that stadium, of course, but this band isn't named for any of them. We'll give you about a minute to think. We'll be back with your answers.
I didn't realize how many jock jams I knew until <laughs> you started on this quiz. I'm very excited about this. Okay. All right. Question All right. one. El Floridita is a historic fish restaurant and cocktail bar in the older part of Havana. Known for its daiquiris, Floridita also boasts a life-size bronze statue of which American writer positioned in his favorite spot at the end of the bar as a perpetual old man by the sea? That's Ernest Hemingway. It sure is. Yes. So um, his home in Cuba was called uh, Finca Vigia or Lookout Farm. He lived there from 1939 to 1960, and that's where he wrote seven books, including The Old Man in the Sea, A Movable Feast, and Islands in the Stream. Question two. Boom, boom, clap. Boom, boom, clap. Which 1977 song royally set in acapella form using only stomping and clapping as percussion, besides a 30-second guitar solo at the end, ranked as Billboard's number one greatest jock jam of all time? Uh, that's We Will Rock You by Queen? Yes. Yeah. Yes, you got it. You got it in one. Uh, in 1977, We Will Rock You and We Are the Champions were issued together as a worldwide top 10 single. Uh, and soon after the album was released, many radio stations just began playing the songs consecutively without interruption. Oh. Uh, uh, we Will Rock You is also the title of a jukebox musical based on the songs of Queen with the book by Ben Elton. Uh, when I played softball when I was in middle school, um, we were very bad. Uh, and I remember we were finally winning a game and um, we started singing We Are the Champions and We Will Rock You on our bench, which was not kind. But we were so excited that we finally won a game. Our our coach um, got very mad at us. <laughs> no orange was, slices for you. No orange slices for us. She was very upset with us. But... <laughs> We did win that game. It was great. Good memories. Good, mem- good memories. <laughs> Question three. Havana's Plaza de la Revolución, or Revolution Square, is one of the largest city squares in the world. And on the eastern facade of the Ministerio del Interior is a giant sculpture modeled in the likeness of an iconic 1960 photograph captured by Alberto Coda. Below the portrait is the phrase, Hasta la Victoria Siempre, the famous quotation by which revolutionary hero and former friend of Fidel Castro? Is that uh, Che Guevara? It is Che Guevara. Um, Revolution Square is also dominated by the Jose Marti Memorial, which features a 358-foot-tall tower and a 59-foot statue. Uh, Marti was a writer and philosopher who became a symbol of Cuba's bid for independence from Spain in the late 19th century, and he's referred to as the Apostle of Cuban Independence. So a lot happening in Revolution Square. Question four. If you go to a wedding in Buffalo, you know you're going to hear what quintessential song by the Isley Brothers, which has been appropriated as the Bills fight song. Uh, that song is called parentheses, the bills make me wanna and parentheses shout <laughs> exclamation point. Uh, yeah. So yeah. since 1987, NFL's Buffalo Bills have used a one minute customized cover version of the song by mm-hmm. Scott Kemper as their fight song. Yep. And uh, big ditch brewing in Buffalo has a beer called make me want a stout, which is a coffee and cream stout brewed with revolution coffee beans from public espresso. That's very we good. We got some of that from my brother over the summer and. He enjoyed it. I mean, it played at my uncle's wedding. Uh, we all did the, you know, a little bit softer now, uh-huh. a little bit louder now. Yep. It's the bills, man. They make they make you want to shout, they, whether good or bad. Yeah, really. I mean, it's a very neutral it, it statement. Actually, yeah, you can play that pretty much, pretty much any time. Yeah, it depends on the tone of voice, frankly. <laughs> Question five. Try to remember a massive explosion causing the destruction of the USS Maine in Havana Harbor triggered the outbreak of what 1898 international conflict? Uh, was that the Spanish-American War? Was the Spanish-American War? Yes! <laughs> so just for a refresher, in 1898, President William McKinley sent the USS Maine to Havana to ensure the safety of American citizens and interests in Cuba, which was struggling with Spain to become independent. On the evening of February 15th, 1898, the Maine sank in Havana Harbor after suffering a massive explosion. McKinley urged patience and didn't declare that Spain had caused the explosion, but with the deaths of 250 out of the 350 sailors on board, New York City newspaper publishers Hearst and Pulitzer decided that the Spanish were to blame, and they publicized this theory as fact in their papers. They both used sensationalistic and astonishing accounts of atrocities committed by the Spanish in Cuba by using headlines in their newspapers such as Spanish murderers, and also popularizing the phrase, remember the main. Their press exaggerated what was happening and how the Spanish were treating the Cuban prisoners. And this was the start of yellow journalism. So that's the term for journalism that presents little or no legitimate well research news while instead using eye-catching headlines for increased sales mm. the original clickbait yep 100 yep. percent. question six the opening verse which you 
may never have heard of this famous 1908 sports anthem, which you definitely have, starts with the lyrics, Katie Casey was baseball mad, had the fever and had it bad. Just to root for the hometown crew, every Sue Katie blew. On her Saturday, her young beau called to see if she'd like to go to see a show, but Miss Kate said no. I'll tell you what you can do. You can take me out to the ball game. <laughs> yes, I am killing this quiz. You're killing this quiz. I am quiz. killing this quiz. Take so me out to the ball game. the song's chorus is what's traditionally sung during the middle of the seventh inning of a baseball game. Um, it was first played at a ballpark in 1934 at a high school game in Los Angeles and played later that year during the fourth game of the 1934 World Series and has been a tradition ever since. That's great. But yeah, the like the verses are like... <laughs> They're nutso. Yeah. <laughs> Question seven. This reimagining of a 1987 blockbuster film transplanted the original movie story from upstate New York to Cuba on the cusp of the Cuban Revolution. Actors Diego Luna and Romola Garay may not have quite had the time of their lives in what 2004 film? Uh, that's Dirty Dancing? Is it Dirty Dancing? No, no, shut up. It's not. It's Dirty Dancing Havana Nights. <laughs> Dirty Dancing, colon, Havana Night. Yes. Um, so Patrick Swayze is in that movie. No, he is He is as dance class instructor. Aww. That's his name in the movie. Apparently, there was like some throwaway line in the original Dirty Dancing that said like, oh, he was so excited to teach somebody this Cuban dance he learned that oh. they were like, perfect. <laughs> we're going to build a whole movie yeah. around that. So, um... Peter Howell, the Toronto star, thought the movie was, quote, charmless, clumsy, and culturally offensive all at the same time. Oh, I love Gave it. it one out of five stars. Wesley Morris of the Boston Globe awarded it two out of four stars, saying, quote, as you might expect, the movie is as square as a sock hop. Oh, oh that's mean. Yep. I bet it wasn't very good. Question eight. I mean, I guess it makes sense if you're running around a baseball diamond, but several other professional and college sports teams, including the Boston Red Sox, Carolina Panthers, UNC Chapel Hill Tar Heels, and University of Pittsburgh Panthers, use what 1969 song as an unofficial celebration music? Okay, this is the one that I got hung up on. Okay. 1969 song. Read the first part of the question to me again. I mean, I guess it makes sense if you're running around a baseball diamond, but several other professional and college sports teams, including the Boston Red Sox, Carolina Panthers, UNC Chapel Hill Tar Heels, and University of Pittsburgh Panthers, use what song as their unofficial celebration music? Okay. All right. All right. 1969. Something about going home. Maybe. No. Something about a diamond. Nope. Your face isn't changing. Um... Running free, running scared, running down the devil. <laughs> Everyone's favorite celebration music. <laughs> no, that's running with the devil. Um, uh, I don't know. What is it? You don't know what the Boston Red Sox sing? No, I don't know. What is it? <sighs> Wait. No, I think I know. It's Neil Diamond. It's Ba Ba Ba. It's Sweet Caroline. <laughs> Sweet Caroline. I didn't know it was that early. I didn't know Sweet Caroline was 1969. You hate that song. I hate that oh, song. Oh, you hate that song. <laughs> you got there. I did. I you did. You did it. I you did. You got there. Mm. Uh, in a 2007 interview, Neil Diamond stated that the inspiration for the song was John F. Kennedy's daughter, Caroline, who was 11 years old at the time it was released. Ew. Yeah. That's what I said. Right? Ew. He was like, no, she's sweet. Yeah, ba ba ba. So good, so good. That's the part Julia really. I hates. hate that part. I hate uh, the sing along part. Yeah. Uh, I'm sorry. You shouldn't be writing unless you are, unless you are her father. Yeah. You should not be writing a song about an 11 year old girl. Yeah. I don't care who she is. I don't care if she's famous or dead or dead. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Not for you, <laughs> sir, Mister Diamond. Question nine. Inside the Morrow Castle Historic Park in Havana is the world's longest what? Measuring a whopping 295 feet created by a master torcedor that would equal a whole mess of crepes at the magic pan. 
Uh, I'm going to say cigar. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes. It was the world's longest Cuban cigar. On May 3rd, 2011, master cigar roller Jose Castellar Cairo, known locally as Cueto, recorded a Guinness World Record with a monster cigar measuring 268 feet. But that wasn't long enough for him. Cueto decided to break his own record in 2016 by rolling a colossal, roughly 295-foot Habano, which he dedicated to Fidel Castro. Um, and it has also, so you know, like Cuban cigars are supposed to be the best in the world or whatever. Sure. It's been estimated that 95% of, quote, Cuban cigars oh sold in the U.S. are counterfeit. <laughs> yeah, you fools. You <laughs> can get mouth and jaw cancer from that. It's Ugh. very serious. They're, yeah. yeah. I don't, it's I no don't. good. And finally, question 10. For all the marbles, Lauren. Oh, God. I'm so stressed out. You're, not, you're nine for nine. I know. I don't know if you've done if you've gone ten for ten before. I've never gotten ten for ten. And if you're before. gonna go ten for ten on a quiz about Cuba and sports songs, well, my friend, I'm gonna take a lap. Yeah, I'm gonna take a lap. If I get all ten, I'm, yeah. I'm gonna take a lap around this room. Yeah, and yeah. I'll keep going. Okay, okay. Question ten. Okay. Oh, mama, I'm in fear for my life from the long arm of the law. Okay. Starts what 1979 rock song that has become an anthem to the Pittsburgh Steelers? There are three rivers by that stadium, of course, but this band isn't named for any of them. Okay. Rivers. Is it? <laughs> is it? Um, is it rolling down the river? Is it? Uh, nope. No, shut up. Uh, is it? I said the band isn't named for any of them. Okay. Uh, band. Uh, Creedence Clearwater Revival. No, this is 1979, you said. Mm-hmm. Okay. River, river band. Oh, mama, I'm in fear for my life from the long arm of the law. Is this is this a song that you would know, but I would not know? You would know it. Would I? Yeah. Okay. Oh, mama, I'm in fear for my life for the long arm of the law. Oh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> it sticks. It sticks. Uh-huh. Oh, God. Is it? Uh, it's not Mr. Roboto. No. No. Okay. <laughs> Shit. Um. Uh, come sail away, Mr. Roboto. Do I know any other stick songs? I don't think I know any other stick songs. No. Paradise by the dashboard light. No, that's meatloaf. <laughs> it's, duh. Oh, no. Sticks. What does Sticks sing? What song is this? The song is called Renegade. Oh, I don't know this song. Oh, oh, I can't it's believe it. It's like the only sick song I know. <laughs> I don't know the Renegade song. I know Mr. Roboto. I know Come Sail Away. I didn't know they did Mr. Roboto. Yeah, that's a later sticks. Well, I know. I know. I know the song. I didn't know it was them. Yeah. That was after the lead singer got into like like rock operas. And so he started like writing weird like rock slash like show tunes. And the rest of the band was like, forget it. We don't want to be anywhere near this. Damn it. I was so close. You were so close. I was so was close. Renegade by Styx. Uh, during the third quarter of every Steelers home game, a video compilation of defensive plays are shown with the utter rocking of Renegade in the background. Oh. And uh, Steel City is my favorite clothier of um, Pittsburgh-related gear. Uh, I'm wearing their pants right now. And this isn't an ad. I just love their product. Um, <laughs> they sell a shirt that says, oh, mom, I want to hear Renegade. And it like sold out like immediately. Oh, of course. Damn it. Yeah, I don't know that song. Oh, my dad is so mad at me right now. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he doesn't even like sticks, but yeah, he would be. <laughs> All right. Pooh. <sighs> you did an awesome job. That's definitely an A. I know, but it's not an A+. Plus. And I, I don't settle for anything less than A+. Plus. That's not true. I've settled for a lot <laughs> less than that in my life. So uh, we, we got an email from listener, Katie oh, S. Katie S., who's been on our, our yeah. podcast before. Yeah. So she sent us some listener-submitted trivia. Um, so after your tuberculosis episode, yes. Katie sent us an email that said that... Um, BCG, which was mentioned as a vaccine for tuberculosis, mm-hmm. is also used as a form of immunotherapy for bladder cancer. What? It's administered after a tumor is removed from a bladder's lining. So this process involves putting a teeny tiny 
tiny bit of bovine tuberculosis into a human's bladder using a catheter. Sure. The most fun way of inserting anything into a bladder. Um, So that stays there for a couple hours and then it like comes out the same way it came in. Um, So it's not understood exactly why, but that little bit of tuberculosis makes the lining of the bladder less likely to develop new tumors. Oh my God. So how did they figure out that something like this would work? Yeah. She said, I'm glad you asked because it is wild. (laughs) And much like a lot of scientific discoveries, the answer is a random string of weird occurrences. Some weirdo out there realized that milkmaids in areas where cows were getting a lot of bovine TB were not getting any kind of bladder cancer at all oh my gosh great uh, were all the other milkmaids getting bladder cancer i don't know <laughs> turns out the small amounts of tb that were transferred to them resulted in a lack of bladder cancer which is a win for science tuberculosis and milkmaids alike that's wonderful thanks katie thanks katie that was great and weird <laughs> that's really cool yeah very interesting so tuberculosis Saving lives too. Saving, saving milkmaids left saving, and right. Yep, it's wonderful. Um, yeah, thanks so much for listening, guys. This was uh, uh, you know, our third, our penultimate. No, not our penultimate episode. No, no, There's our a middling, more. our median episode of uh, Dictator December. Thank you so much for sticking with us. Um, uh, you can find us uh, wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah, please rate, review, and subscribe. Exactly. Tell a friend. And uh, thank you to everyone who's been um, rating and reviewing. Uh, we totally appreciate it. Um, a lot of f- very funny, kind reviews um, on iTunes and... So lovely. Uh, thank you, on guys. Uh, other podcast apps that are, none are coming to mind at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, thanks so much for listening, guys. Yeah, we'll catch you later. Bye. Bye.